the Cambridge Film Show on Cambridge 105 Radio. Hello and welcome to the Cambridge Film Show broadcasting here on Cambridge 105 Radio across the city and South Cambridgeshire. After a rather blustery couple of days, the Cambridge Film Show is here to blow you away with our fortnightly dose of light film chat, ready and settled to calm you through recommendations of what to see in our cinemas and on our very own sofa. I'm Yozzy Osman and with me today to talk all things film are Vicky Eyre. Hello. Lorcan O'Neill. Hello. And Simon West. Hello. We have all kinds of films to pack in over the next hour, from treasure troves with Tom Holland in Uncharted to pondering with Poirot in Death on the Nile. We discuss Japanese romantic drama Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy before delving into some Academy Award chat with coming-of-age drama Coda and Danish animated docudrama Flea. And if that was not enough, we have one more treat for you with another visit to Leatherface in the latest Texas Chainsaw Massacre film. So lots to come, but to start, let's find our fortune. Hey kid, a little young for a bartender, aren't you? A little old for prom, aren't you? Everything in here. Why the map? It's the biggest treasure that's never been found. Five billion easy. But it's just a story. I beg to differ. Five hundred years ago, my family found the world's biggest fortune, then was betrayed. People have been searching for it all in vain. Tom Holland and Mark Wahlberg star in action-adventure film Uncharted, a globe-trotting white-knuckle race to reach some buried treasure before Antonio Banderas can stand in their way. Added to that, Tom's Nate might find some more precious cargo in the search for his long-lost brother if he and Wahlberg Sully can withstand some classic bickering. Lorcan, Uncharted is based on a popular video game series developed by Sony. I have no idea if you know the source material, but how does it stand in that kind of field of action-adventure? Um, I, I've, I, I am familiar with the games, um, and they're... It's kind of like the same vein as like uh, Lara Croft, kind of like aping off of the success of Indiana Jones and that whole uh, kind of formula. Um, I was a little worried about this film because it takes most of the point, plot points from the fourth game, which uh, I, I'm probably by myself here, but it's um, not the best game in the in the series by any means. So I was going in with fairly low expectations, especially with this is directed by Ruben Fleischer, who uh, directed Venom and Zombieland, both Zombielands, none of which I was particularly fond of. Um, but then as the film went on, I was uh, surprised by um, how many real sets there were, how genuinely kind of charming and amusing it was. Um, the action is quite visually funny. Um, and then by the end, I was completely sold, even though it does tread into kind of over-the-top CGI mess. Um, it was it was still very easy to follow, and uh, I found myself relating to the characters, and I'm, ha- I'm happy to see more if they want to do another one, which I'm sure they will. Vicky, coming to you next, do you think that there is enough excitement here to last as a as an ad- action adventure series? Yeah, I think um especially with the casting that they've done, like Tom Holland and Mark Wahlberg seem to have this like fun energy and chemistry together. 
I mean, uh, they had uh, Tati Gabrielle as Braddock as well, and she was visually stunning and exciting throughout the film. And uh, I mean, I can't really say much about Antonio Banderas's character, but the rest of them had me like glued to the screen. And going off what Lorcan was saying, the nostalgia I got from this type of film is like it's one of my favorite tropes, and. Like, I got mummy vibes. I got Brendan Fraser for, like, Tom Holland. Like, they kind of have the same likability, and especially with, like, a gunslinger waistcoat, I just... I had, like, a lot of fun childhood, yeah, memories from watching this, and um, even, like, going back as far as, like, the Goonies with the end scene, I just thought the sets were great, and, uh, yeah, if they wanted to do a second one, I would also be very on board. Oh, positive so far. Simon, I was going to ask, um, Vicky mentioned some films there, um, like The Mummy. Does it rely too much on those kind of tropes from other action adventures we've seen, or is there something here that's quite refreshing? Um, well, it is what, you know, it is what it is, is what it comes down to. It is based on a video game, which are based on films. There isn't really anything new here, any room for it to be original or you know unexpected um but that's not what it's trying to do so um yeah like Lorcan and vicky i quite enjoyed it i went in with low expectations as i think a lot of people have done um <laughs> there's always been this curse of the video game movie not being very good um this is one of the better ones but i think mainly because it doesn't lean too heavily on the video game side of it and because of video games it's based on rip off so many of the old classic spielberg style films so do this and that's you know what makes it enjoyable how much does this film rely on its its stars tom holland mark Wahlberg, for example um quite heavily but i think for some reason tom holland seems to get a free pass i don't i think greta gerwig's making a barbie movie uh with margot robbie i think tom holland would be a perfect ken and then that's all i just i just really don't he see he always appears to me like a doll that you dress up and like like vicky was saying you liked when he had the gunslinger waistcoat but it's like that's it it's a costume on just like this blank thing whenever he's spider-man it's just a costume on this kind of blank thing i feel like you're being a bit harsh here he, <laughs> yeah, he he was so miscast in this role. That's one of the big problems with the film being an Uncharted film, that he is not Nathan Drake. I mean, I absolutely love the guy. He's fantastic in Spider-Man and Peter Parker, but he still seems to be in that teen thing. There is a funny scene at the beginning where um, Tin and Jones plays young Nate flashback, and then it goes 15 years later, and I'm thinking, I can't spot the difference here. Um, he... If it didn't have the charm and charisma that he puts into Peter Parker and you just enjoy watching Tom Holland, that's fine. I still think he's miscast the role, but he's Tom Holland doing action and that's still enjoyable. <laughs> yeah, no, I totally agree. I think Tom Holland doing action, I, I'm like opposed to you. I, like, I think he's a, like a darling in this. I don't know, he's like a Hollywood darling right now and I'm just fully involved in the Tom Holland hype and even, I haven't played the video games, I don't know what Nathan Drake's supposed to be, but as someone apart that hasn't got that knowledge i think it was a really good choice but obviously that's coming from a new perspective okay and um obviously along with the kind of typical thing of finding some treasure there's the kind of story with the long lost brother does that work well in this narrative um i think this is that's kind of what i was drawing on because the, the brother thing comes into the like the fourth uncharted game and i think that it ruins the the Nathan character because at the, at the start of the series he's kind of like this loner who's kind of like by himself and he has to like 
uh, pick very carefully who he works with, and then as this as the series go on, he gets more and more mentors to the point where he's just a nut. He's just whoever he's just the protege of whoever he's currently with. Um, so I was happy that the brother thing is very much sidelined to really build on the dynamic between Tom Holland and Mark Wahlberg. I like when Mark Wahlberg is funny, like other guys funny. He's um, he always ha- has this kind of carefree air, but his line deliveries are kind of deadpan. Um, and I like their their. They don't really have much relationship. There's not really a dynamic between the two. It's just they kind of joke with each other every now and then. But I th- again, I thought it was quite amusing. It had a natural kind of almost improv feel to it. But it was funny, so it probably wasn't improv. I feel like they definitely have set up this certain storyline for a second film. You know, they have gone into it knowing this is going to be a franchise. And that's why they've cast uh, Rudy uh, Panko. So he's from like a uh, Netflix TV show at the minute. And I don't think he w- they would have given so little screen time unless there was like something else in the deal with this. So, yeah. I think that's one of the reasons why they did cast Tom Holland and Mark Wahlberg because... Mm-hmm they want it to go long they want these characters to be able to grow up and grow through it rather than doing a an older actor who would fit the part more i think it is almost like prequel bait to you know to get in the sequels to actually have a sequence so we're going to be seeing them again but overall it seems like the three of you have quite a positive view of this film and you would all welcome another one and also if you don't know the video game series it doesn't really matter i'm assuming you can go in and watch this afresh which is which which sounds really good so uncharted is showing at the light and view cinemas it is a certificate 12a Next up, we are visiting another Agatha Christie classic with sweeping murder mystery, Death on the Nile. And gentlemen, please welcome the newlyweds, Mr. and Mrs. Simon Doyle. You must meet Hercule Poirot. My congratulations, madame. Merci. He's only the greatest detective alive. I suspect you invited me for reasons other than the fun. You had something to hide. We have the Karnak all to ourselves, a chef and enough champagne to fill the Nile. Should've hidden it, shouldn't you? When you have money, no one is ever really your friend. It's too late to change events. It's time to face the consequence. Someone is dead. The crime. Belgian sleuth Hercule Poirot cannot catch a break when he tries to take a holiday on board a beautiful river steamer in Egypt. Of course, someone has suffered a terrible murder and there is a whole cast of individuals considered as the suspect, including, but not limited to, Army Hammer, Gal Gadot, Russell Brand, Letitia Wright, Dawn French and even more. Simon, this is another Christie adaptation with the classic murder mystery tale at its centre. Does it do enough to keep the audience guessing? Um, I was guessing throughout. I didn't guess who it was. I may have seen the film a long time ago, I can't remember, so I went in fresh on a Sunday morning for a nice Sunday morning film, and that's what I got. Um, again, very low expectations because I really wasn't a fan of Murder of the Orient Express, uh, Kenneth Braddock's first primary film. Um, and when I saw the trailers for this, I wasn't excited for this, but recently, more and more I've seen of it, it's like, yeah, I could go for that, and yeah, I enjoyed it. It's, again, it's what it says on the tin, it's a lot of famous people, all 
you know, swanning it up on a uh, nice cruise in CG 1930s Egypt. Um, you know, the film did have its down points. I mean, there's no reason to have the prequel, which seems the sort of like pre-credit scene, um, which is the um, sort of like the prequel to why he got his moustache, which then made absolutely no sense for the rest of the film, which was just bizarre. Um, but then you got lots of big movie stars swanning around with a big who done it and yeah i you know was wrapped it out so i'm gonna unpick a little bit of what you've said there yeah. i mean are you a fan of of the murder mystery genre in general um on and off i mean the problem is we've had knives out recently which, which raised the Christie game you know it completely raised the bar for those kind of films yeah um and this is nowhere near as sharp or as witty as Knives Out, and that is a big shadow that hangs over it. This is, the, I mean, I was growing up with the um, old 1980s uh, Agatha Christie Sunday afternoon films on ITV, um, you know, where you go down, sit it, watch it with your grandparents, and I think that's the audience this film is pitched at, mm. and I think they will enjoy it. So, two questions here, because I think Murder on the... Orient Express came out a couple of years ago. I, I, I might be wrong. The years all blur now. Um, but, Lorcan, to you, is there anything new here? And then Simon raised a, a good point about, you know, Poirot's um, backstory that they mm. do in the first sort of ten minutes of the film. D does that add, add anything new, or do you think it was kind of pointless? Uh, so the first thing, do they add anything new? Yes. Uh, they take a globe-trotting adventure, adventure in this foreign land um, and they just put a bunch of actors in front of a green screen which is pretty ambitious <laughs> about, it's just like it's so awkward because you have this beautiful B-unit footage of just like landscapes and then it cuts to the boat and it's just the most hideous looking thing ever um, it's slightly better than uh, Murder, on the Orient, Murder on the Orient Express which is the thrilling setting of a train snow jammed in the middle of nowhere so it was cgi yet all the cgi green screen was just white um so at least this there's like some animations going on there's like some fake birds flying around uh, <laughs> to distract the eye every, every so often <laughs> mainly to distract from gal Gadot's performance um was, and then the the opening uh kind of prologue where, like Simon says, you find out uh, how Poirot got his mustache. Um, the whole thing, I thought, was pretty laugh-out-loud funny. I was really hoping it would maintain that level of yeah. ridiculous camp throughout. I think they tried to give a relationship um, more understanding in the character of Hercule Poirot. And I think Brenner tried to get through, himself more screen time. Yeah, more screen time, try and relate it, it to It does feel a little have, bit like that, though, doesn't all, it? All of that side just got ignored. It was just... You know, you're really there with the mystery. You, you know, you want the mystery. You said, who did it? And that's it, you know. And I asked this question with Uncharted, and I'm going to ask it again. Obviously, there, it's a very fleshed-out cast here. There's lots of big names involved in this. And sometimes with these kinds of films, you do wonder if it is just about the names that you've got to play all these different characters. And I, I, I just... I don't know. I... I, I this genre to me is a bit mixed, so I, I, I'm not sure, but it just feels like just get a name here, get a name there, and then you've done it. You've got that murder mystery drama. Am I being too negative here? Um, I, I, I think that's fairly accurate. I mean, you're adapting Agatha Christie's, uh, an Agatha Christie work, so there's gonna, it's going to be intrinsically um, pretty engaging, and um, I, I thought it was fairly obvious who 
the villain was throughout the film because there's a, a particular moment where I'm like, oh, okay, so whatever yeah. happens with this particular thing next is... But anyway, um, so the, the story is going to be intrinsically kind of engaging because of the source material. It's just the whether or not the performers can carry off the kind of campy, everyone like kind of dress rehearsal at a hotel kind of thing. Um, and everyone plays their like very specific, esoteric, eccentric character. Um, but I think it's it's so subject subjective to... Um, who makes these films? We had like Last Night in Soho recently, which I thought was just horrendous. Like how how do you that that film is a masterclass of how do you not build a murder mystery plot? Um, and so this one has the fallback of it's based on subject matter that isn't is, as proven to work. Um, I just think the execution of the direction is a little lazy, even if most of the performances are pretty fine. The murder mysteries, it's its very popular at the moment. I'm just thinking about some of the releases that we've got on Netflix and Apple TV+. Plus. You know, we've got The After Party. We've got, um, I can't remember what it's called, that one on Netflix that's just come out. Uh, it's a comedy. Anyway, it doesn't matter. But there's lots of different murder mystery genre, like series and films coming out at the moment. So it's quite popular. Does this do enough to kind of fill the excitement that you expect of a murder mystery amongst all the other choice that you might have um i mean that's it it's not the most excitement excitement is not the word i use with this film you want comfort i think we're getting a lot of murder mysteries because they're easy to film on a cheap single location and with the recent um you know uh, restrictions that have been i mean this film was actually made i think what was it over two years ago um, which explains a lot of the cast choices. But um, I think that's why you're getting more and more, because it is an easy thing to make, an easy thing to film. Um, but you is can't it easy? You the full big budget. Because it's, the, it's coming down to you need sharp writing and sharp acting, and you need memorable characters. I think they do use a cast here slightly as a crutch, because... If you have one or two famous people in a murder mystery, you know they're either the killer or the um, you know the victim. You can't have lots of blank people and one or two. So therefore, if you fill the cast full of famous people, it does give that mystery. Oh, you don't have the meta. Who's it going to be? Because it could be any of them. Um, I mean, I did wonder on this film because, without giving too much away, um, Russell Brand was in it, and I swear half his dialogue seemed to be cut for the first half of the film until he's required. It's almost like you've got a famous person there who is doing absolutely nothing apart from being a background character, and that does slightly misplay it. I think with murder mysteries, though, I mean, it is a nice, comforting watch, but it, it, I think because we're so used to these certain tropes of murder mystery, it's actually quite difficult to make something that's refreshing in this genre. And I think, especially with Agatha Christie, because there's been so many adaptations of her work, it, it's easy to go into this thinking, this is just another one of those. It's There's nothing new, there's nothing... I mean, that might be a comforting view, but I'm just trying to understand what we can expect if we go in, and see this film. Is it just another one of those, if that makes sense? Um, I, I think it is, is definitely just another one of those. I don't know if people have just kind of given up on the idea of uh, revitalising um, murder mysteries, like Simon says. Knives Out, which I was kind of uh, middling of the road, from, which was kind of middling of the road for me, um, it was... 
again, it had the big cast, um, but it was like what it did differently was uh, lots of different locations, a quick pace, um, and refreshingly over-the-top characters that we hadn't seen on screen in a while. It's, it's usually a lot more subdued, I think, in the early 2000s and up until more recently. It's been murder mysteries tend to be more kind of violent and gruesome and like downplayed. Um, so they're getting a bit more fun. I think I guess it's just how much you want to play with the tone, and this film doesn't play with its tone really at all. It's just it is it is exactly what you get in the tin. It, it's exactly what it says in the tin. It's the bare minimum, I would say, in terms of okay, you have to adapt the story. You've got the story, you've got the script. What can we add? Okay, there's lots of kind of 1920s or 1930s jazz settings. Um, lots of like music of the time, costumes. Like your your eyes constantly dazzled, um, but then yeah, it's 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 just a perfectly adequate, comforting watch. Like Simon says, there's it's just how much you want to risk the tone. I think this is the only thing you can really do nowadays. Perfectly adequate. I'm not sure if that's the best way to sum up this film because I think I think it is. You know, you both said it. It's 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 an easy, nice, comforting watch for people. So something something to do um, and something to see on on the big screen. And it is showing at all three Cambridge cinemas. It is a certificate twelve A. Now, Valentine's Day may have just passed, but we're still up for discussing some romantic drama with Japanese anthology Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy. And resident film fan Vicky will talk us through this. Now, Vicky, I know um, Ryosuke Hamaguchi, so he explores a complex love triangle in this film, Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy. He, he's just been nominated. He's got sterling success with Drive My Car, which I know you're a huge fan of. So take us through Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy, and I, I have a feeling that you're also a fan of this one. I am indeed. <clears throat> Sorry. I, um, I managed to catch this at the uh, Cambridge Film Festival this year, which also showed Drive My Car. Um, it was actually, yeah, it was last year. And uh, basically, he is a director uh, that has came out in the same year with two films, um, both on this like festival circuit. One of them's like gunning for the Oscars. And I just think this is like a lovely... So the other one was based on like source material. It was based on... Um, Murakami, uh, or is this one like shows a bit more of his like directing in general and how he, he wants to do a film? Uh, this film is three separate stories, so three short stories within one bit, but they all focus on like um, female love interactions. Um, that being said, they are all so different in their nature. Uh, the first one really like sets the guns on in. Uh, it's about, like you mentioned, a love triangle. Um, between two friends she realises that her friend is going out with her ex-boyfriend and it really um, delves into like complications and it's kind of it's like a dark side of romance you then go even darker with the second story it's about a woman that's trying to blackmail um, get blackmail source material from her professor um, it's I'm going to say it's about 10 minutes of uncomfortable um, just a script like she just reads it's a very good character like uh, scenes and then he then like eases out of the film it's like the last one is about two women who find them like it's like a friendship and then they don't really know each other and they just tell and express about their past experiences and it ends on such a light happy note that you don't actually realize the kind of trauma you've went through um from the second story and when I watched this, I was like, 
he's literally he's great in capturing these really delicate like these delicate characters and he did that with drive my car as well it's not flashy in any way it's just really good storytelling and i think after he made drive my car he probably wanted to do something that was like his and that's where this has come from and you said that the film is told in in three movements and it's mm. in three parts and um I, th- I often think it's quite brave to tell a story in that way because sometimes the parts don't match up to each other but it sounds like from what you're saying that each story has its own uniqueness but actually it works all together as well and and that's quite difficult to do yeah definitely and uh it's really hard to get also really strong female protagonists to have their own characteristics and what that you can define so clearly as they're in such a short amount of time like within the first five minutes or so of the first film you like you realize all these characters are going to mean a lot in this very short space of time which if we just go like back to the films that we reviewed like death on an island uncharted they have the whole film and you kind of get a tiny bit of charisma whereas these are like on the screen straight away you're in the story and these characters are here to like show you about they're going to say something to you personally, I think. And that's why I'm like kind of obsessed with this director and I'm so excited for his future. Well, I was just about to say, because he's clearly very talented. He's just been mm-hmm. recognised for Drive My Car. And we, we'll go into this a little bit, hopefully, at the end of the show. You know, Oscar nominations have just mm-hmm. come out and Drive My Car has been nominated. And it's, it's you know, it, it seems like he is an absolute talent. Can you just go into a little bit more detail about what you really like about his directing? It's... Uh, so I, the way to explain it is that I've seen both these films after like quite a long day at work and it kind of, it's it's not an Agatha Christie Sunday watch, it's more like a, when you're a little bit tired and you just need something to like, it's slow cinema but really engaging, um, it's not flashy or bangs, it's just if you really need something to engage with, um, like it's like, I'm gonna. It's not gonna sound great, but it's like an audio book. But it, like you're seeing beautiful things on screen, but you're getting like the calming tones of a film, and that's how like I can really best describe it. It's just being comforting by like slow speeches and stuff. But it, the, it's nothing. It's nothing dramatic when you come out and then you realize how good of like a thing you've just watched. And yeah, no, no, yeah. you're explaining it really well. So clearly. These these films, Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy and Drive by Car, they're, they're not currently in cinemas, but it's something to... Oh, Wheel of Fortune will be showing at the Picture House. It will be showing at the Picture House. Yeah. There you go. Thank you for correcting <laughs> me on that. So you can still see Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy at the Arts Picture House, and it sounds like it's a really great film to go and watch. I know I'm going to be going to see it for sure. So thank you very much, Victoria. Cambridge 105 Radio. On Cambridge 105 Radio, Gadget Guide gives you a download on the world of tech. Rob Chipperfield and Lawrence Michalif take you through streaming TV services, the latest releases from Apple and Google, and everything you need to get the best out of working from home. Digital assistants are helping us to do more in our homes. Does your light bulb respond to voice commands yet? Cambridge technology company Raspberry Pi have some news. Gadget Guide, Monday at 6, online and on Cambridge 105 Radio. Just your average night. Fraser's upstairs gaming online with his mates. Sophie's streaming her favourite tunes in her bedroom. Mum's downloading the latest drama box set. And Dad's liking kitten videos on his phone. But this isn't your average night. 
Thanks to City Fibre's full fibre network, everyone's gaming, streaming and scrolling at breakneck speed. Join Cambridge's gigabit revolution today. Head to cityfibre.com slash Cambridge 105. CKLG Accountants are a friendly team of accountants and tax advisors with big firm expertise. I'm Lawrence, Director of CKLG, responsible for business services. We understand that running a successful business brings many challenges. Our experienced business services team provide a bespoke service and offer professional advice at every stage of your business journey, allowing you the freedom to focus more on what you do best. To find out more, call us on Cambridge 810100 to arrange an initial chat with one of our specialists or visit our website cklg.co.uk cklg accountants your partner in business your partner in life on monday evening join dj kuriakin for two hours of roots reggae dance hall and lovers rock it's called painting on silence the album and it's the uppercut band collaborating with a variety of artists you've also got people like glenn washington on there carol thompson luciano and others uh, you'll definitely be hearing more from that revelation time monday night at nine on cambridge 105 radio yeah so just keep it locked listen live on radio player the cambridge film show on cambridge 105 radio you are listening to Cambridge 105 Radio and this is the Cambridge Film Show. We are halfway through our journey discussing the latest film releases to grace your screens, both cinema and on your tellies. And next up, it is something that you can watch from your very own sofa. There are plenty of pretty voices with nothing to say. Do you have something to say? Sometimes I get a good feeling, yeah. Yeah. I get a feeling that I never, 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 never had before. You're the girl with the deaf family? Yeah. Yeah. I just want to tell you right now. And you sing. Interesting. Something's got a hold on me, yeah. What are you doing next year? Working with my family. Let me tell you now. I've been coaching for Berklee College of Music. I can help you get a scholarship. Coming of age drama film CODA, which stands for Child of Deaf Adults, is written and directed by Sean Hader and has been a brilliant success for Apple TV+, recently nominated for Best Picture at the 94th Academy Awards. A remake of 2014 French language film La, Maf- La Famille Bellière, CODA stars Amelia Jones as 17-year-old Ruby, the sole hearing member of a deaf family. As well as acting as an interpreter for her parents, played by Marley Matan and Troy Katzer, and working on the family fishing boat, Ruby joins her high school choir and finds her life transformed with a newly discovered gift for singing. With her talent and more discovered with this hobby, Ruby soon finds herself juggling her aspirations and the obligation she feels in looking out for her family. Simon, 
I know from our discussions before the show that you're quite taken with this film. Coda, it's the first film in history to win all of the Sundance Festival's top prizes in the US dramatic category. It's had a lot of talk. What is there to love about this? Um, from the opening moments, I just thought it was absolutely beautiful um, with the shots on the boat from the New, um, Gloucester, New England. Um, and you soon quickly get into the, the life and family and understand the difficulties that they face being a um, a deaf family working on the boats with their hearing daughter, played by, uh, Ruby, played by Amelia Jones. Um, and then for most of the film, you get her struggle about wanting to have her own life, um, singing, um, which one thing I've normally when people sing in films i'm like yeah okay okay and i thought she was really good when she, her songs and her voice were absolutely fantastic um and the film follows her trying to get the confidence at school um to sing and follow her passions yet being um controlled and restrained by the requirements her family have who rely on her to be the link between their business and the hearing world and that's where a lot of the drama comes in and slowly over the film she helps her family move out of their comfort zones um, to take control of their own destinies and their own lives and not be restricted by their impairments um, and it is described as a coming of age drama you yeah. know when you when you look it up and it, it sounds like sometimes when you hear that term you you just kind of automatically think about certain tropes in films but it seems like this one there's there's a lot that's quite special behind it and i'm not just talking about the fact that she's from a deaf family that there's just a, yeah. that it's rich with you know it's a universal thing about trying to break away from your family and expectations and what you want to do while discovering yourself and following your own passions which you know m nearly everybody goes through when they're teenagers um so you know despite you know the setting it, it has got these uni universal appeal to everyone Lorcan, I know you've seen this film as well, and I think you also are, are a fan. And Simon's just mentioned Amelia Jones. Tell us a little bit more about what she brings to, to this central role. Um, well, I mean, you have to... It's, it's intrinsically about a teenager worried that she's doing something incredibly selfish um, and leaving her family behind who badly need her. So I think you, they needed to cast someone who can get across, like a lot of conflicting emotions of being loyal while also pursuing your dream without um, coming across as selfish and I think she does an amazing job and like Simon says her voice is so good that you, you never doubt that this is what uh, this is what she should be doing um, I, I hope this becomes like a recurring thing with the Oscars where every year they just a film just comes out of nowhere that seems to have been out for a while um, gets, gets a few Oscar nominations like The Father last year never heard of it until it got some nominations watch it and it's absolutely incredible it's the same with this this was such a pleasant surprise um it was just a curiosity to watch to see why it was nominated but um the whole cast is incredible um there is some genuinely um creative filmmaking particularly as the film goes on um you're put more in the place of the death family and what they kind of experience while their daughter's trying to achieve this goal and it's genuinely heartbreaking i'm quite glad vicky hasn't seen it because i don't think there's enough there's enough um inhalers in the world to get into that one <laughs> Um, I mean, I, I, I did say that it's not just a, a film about 
um, a, the deaf community. But just thinking about that, that kind of representation, Lorcan, you, you've mentioned it a little bit, but Simon, I just want to expand yeah. on that and how it does portray what it's like to be, particularly for Amelia Jones's character, a child of deaf adults, and what that feels like for her and that responsibility she has with her family, what that representation looks like. Um, I mean, this follows up from last year's Sound of Silence, uh, where you're following with a maid's character going into the deaf community and, you know, working out how much a community is. In this film, I felt the community wasn't there, but the family were really quite proud of their disability. They don't see it, well, they don't see it as a disability or an impairment. They see it as just another way of life. Um, the film doesn't you know, degrade them in any way, you know, or put them down. It's, you know, as far as they're concerned, they're fully equals. I mean, Marley Matlin is absolutely fantastic. I mean, she has won an Oscar before. Um, as the mother and Troy Costa, the father, again, absolutely superb. He's been nominated for Best Actor, Best Supporting Actor in the Oscars this time. Um, but you really do get the impression that, oh, you know, the family are, are trying really hard. They, you know, they love the, each other and the family. Um, you get the usual brother-sister conflicts, which you get in any family. Um, you know, the people who, who don't let their deafness get in the way of their life. And it really does show them living to the full. Um, I, I think, um, just to go back to, like, the kind of the, the unusual... Sorry, the way the filmmaker kind of expresses new things, um, it, it, it doesn't... It doesn't. Uh, it isn't uh, kind of unable to convey certain things because the family's death. It uh, prides itself on finding ways around communicating things. There are like, as you might have guessed from the trailer, there's full scenes that are all sign language, but they edit around it as if it's just a punchy like Aaron Sorkin kind of dialogue scene. Yeah. Whereas usually it's just kind of like long shots and you just kind of see them in the subtitles. But it's like the, everyone's so funny. And the way the film's edited, you get the exact emotion that people are trying to sign. And there's like lots of I don't know, I don't know if they take liberties with the sign language at certain points to emphasize like certain funny things. But it is genuinely laugh out loud funny at times. And there's no one you, you aren't completely endeared to throughout the whole film. And it's it, it's something that I mean I've seen it. I would highly recommend. And I hate to ask this question. I always ask this. I mean, just like the Sound of Metal, which Simon you you mentioned earlier but these are films that you can watch on your tv they are they are on streaming is do we still get a really good experience from watching it on streaming or is this something that we think would be better in a cinema um i mean i have problems i don't enjoy watching films at home as much as the cinema i definitely prefer the cinema i had absolutely no trouble watching this if anything to be honest from the opening scenes on the nice oled tv it was so crisp and sharp and beautiful and bright. I did actually wonder, thinking, would it actually look this good in a cinema? And I wasn't actually too sure. It's the first time I think I've ever really thought that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, watch at home, take your time. I didn't have any problems with this one. Super. So that is a lot of praise for Coda. Do watch it if you can. It's currently available on Apple TV+. And it is a certificate 12 Hey, thank you very much. We now turn to another film that has attracted some critic and awards attention with Danish animated docudrama Flea. Now, um, and yep. Try to take a deep breath and like, just relax.
Have you ever told your story before? No. But you're okay telling it to me now? Yes. Flee or Flucht in its original Danish title is directed by Jonas Foher Rasmussen and follows the story of Amin Nawabi, who stars as himself, sharing his powerful account of fleeing his home country of Afghanistan to Denmark as a refugee whilst on the verge of marrying his husband. That's when he tells the story. Lorcan, there's a the lot said about the blend between animation and docudrama with Flea. Does this work? Well, I, I, as far as I'm aware, the reason this is animated is primarily to hide the identities of the people involved to keep them safe. Um, so it's, I think it's less a deliberate artistic choice and more of a kind of this is the only thing we can really do, um, which comes across because I thought the animation was absolutely horrendous in this film. It does that, that kind of modern thing of you kind of drop down the frame rate of the animation so you don't have to animate it as much. So you just get this kind of really choppy uh, scene of someone walking across a room is just like they're teleporting step by step. Um, I, I really wasn't a fan of it at all. Um, and then, so that's that's the, the main, I mean, it's nominated for Best Animated Film at the Oscars, and I think it's... And Best bit, Documentary as and well. And Best Documentary, yeah. yeah. But I, I think the other problem for me was that I, I didn't actually dig the guy that much, the um, narrator. Um, you kind of you you kind of introduced him uh, as like this uh, child who goes around dancing in a dress in Afghanistan, and he says the reason he did that was because he likes attention. Um, and then they introduce this kind of unreliable narrator thing about a third of the way through the film. Um, and then on top of that, whenever you see him in the modern day, the way he interacts with his boyfriend, I think, is quite manipulative, and he kind of gaslights him. Um, and then at one point, uh, the director even brings us up, being like, why are you doing this to your boyfriend? And the guy's like, oh, aren't you supposed to be on my side? So the guy himself, I didn't actually... Uh, like, if I met him, I don't think I'd like him that much. So uh, be, I think it's fair and charitable to say that everything in the, in this, that he says in the story takes place. Um, I, it's just that he, the way the film puts across his character is kind of dubious. Okay, so two big things coming out that I'm going to come to Vicky on next, if that's all right. So one mm. is the animation. Mm. I think Lorcan used the word horrendous there mm. in terms of how it works with the narrative and this documentary. So I'd just like your thoughts on that. And then Simon, we'll come to you just to think about that that narrator and the fact that it, this is his own story that he is telling in this format and how that works. So let's come to you on the animation, Vicky. Um so yeah, like uh, I, I'm a big fan of animation. You know, I studied illustration, and this is not my favorite type of animation at all. Like Lorcan was saying, they have slowed down the frame rate, so it's a bit it's a bit jagged on screen. And I mean, it works well when you think of dream sequence, well, flashback sequences, um, and dream sequences throughout this. And you know, um, it's a hard telling story, and they have they've. I understand the reason for this and I'm quite thankful because that animation was chosen. I just feel like it was a second decision to do so and they haven't got the the right way of doing it. But in saying that, I thought it was fine. Like, uh, as in, like, the story is so hard-hitting that you need something else to focus on at certain points and the animation does a good way of... I mean, it gets it across, but it is distracting, and I still felt all the emotions I meant to feel while watching it. And yes, it's it, yeah, it just wasn't my favorite thing. But um, I don't understand. It's 
really its nomination for best animation when you've got so many other good films out last year but best documentary yes i do i do get that from it and no, that's it really so I mean I, I've already mentioned the narrator but also the fact that this the, the subject matter here it's really personal and it, there are sensitivities at play I just want to get your opinion on how that's all handled in this film I did find it a very interesting story um, hearing him to go through there to be um, charitable to Lorcan's comments I think um, he wasn't unreliable at placing with the narrator and he wasn't necessarily you know kind to his boy his husband um but i think part of this the film and the message it's trying to say is that you do need to understand your past to be able to continue on with your future um he was saying a lot of the story he's told here he's saying he's not he's not told anyone before so he's not even addressed to himself it's keep hidden there are reasons why he's not um being as reliable in in the present as you know he he possibly you'd prefer um because of the trauma he has gone through as a child so it is kind of understandable and part of the film i think is is it's more like a therapy session is what you're listening to rather than somebody just saying in a documentary is almost him having more of a therapy session about telling everybody what actually happened to him um, but is that engaging for for viewers? I did find it engaging. Um, I'm with Lorcan and Vicky. I did not like the animation. I could not understand why it was getting praise. The low frame rate was really... From what I'd heard about the film, I was expecting to go in and be wowed. And I wasn't. And I was like, hmm. But his story is what kept me in my seat and kept me interested in the rest of the film. And I found that was interesting about what happened. I mean, the animation is intercut with a lot of um, um, uh, live action shots as well, uh, reported footage, um, you know, the old 16mm stuff. So you do get to see about what's actually happening at the time. Because um, this, of course, is the... He, he left Afghanistan from the 19... Was it 1990 rising of the Taliban? Um, so while there are a lot of similar uh, situations to what's currently happening now in Afghanistan, this isn't a concurrent story. This is a, you know, it is a historical mm. one. So going on what Simon just said there, so um, he's saying it's like a therapy session to understand his past, but also, also because you're completely on this guy's side from the beginning of the documentary. Mm. You, he gets, he tells you a story at the beginning and then you're getting led through it. But there's quite, there's like a sharp moment where basically he's actually been telling a lie, even to the person that's making the film, he's been telling a lie throughout his whole childhood for very good reasons, obviously for his asylum. Um, and I think this is like a moment where he's like, that's a lie I've been telling myself for so long. I've just told you it, but it's actually not the truth. And at that point, he's like, and then he goes on to tell his the truth, which is completely different from how you start the film how you start feeling for him and then obviously I, I think he made this not just as a therapy session but as mm. like a thing like that's actually my past I've been living a different past in my mind throughout this whole time um, and that's where maybe people lose favour in like his story because you feel like you've been lied to as an audience member but also like it's such it's such an engaging such traumatic story um, and there's I mean I still really liked the way he's done this i understand but you do um it's quite a sharp turn it, you do get a bit betrayed by this film one quick thing just to go back to this point before we have to move on but mm. if this was not an animation if this was a documentary and if it was told in a different style 
would that have worked more for you all? I don't think so. I think the reason it was so interesting is because it's an animation and it's quite new as an art form um, to do this kind of documentary thing with it. But if this was a documentary, I don't think it would have got maybe the funding or the kind of widespread availability that it is. Yeah, I, I'm just not sure it's a big enough uh, a big enough story to hold an audience for a feature film unless there is something else to distract because it's effectively one guy telling a story in a room and lots of the runtime is just quiet animation moments and then every so often he'll say something and then that'll trigger a new animated segment. Um, so I think it, it's maybe it is the best way to tell the story, but I'm not sure not sure there's enough content to like kind of justify it really. Okay, so that is Flea, and if you would like to make your own mind up on that, it is currently showing at the Arts Picture House in Cambridge, and it is a certificate 15. We have one more film left today on the Cambridge Film Show on Cambridge 105, and it's time to get a little bit scary. So Harlow is a ghost town. We have a vision for this place. All it needs is young blood. I don't want to live here. This is a chance for people to start fresh somewhere. Somewhere safe. Hey, guys. You should see this. What are you doing in our house? That was the trailer for Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which sees another visit to Leatherface in the sequel to the 1974 slasher film. This time, his targets are a group of young influencer teens who are trying to start a new business venture. Full disclosure, I, I haven't seen this one. I hate horror films. So, Vicky, I know you, you're a bit of a fan of a horror film, aren't you? You could say that. And this is a very popular franchise. So mm. what's new with this film? Right, so... Uh we're back so we're joining Leatherface again and I think Leatherface is like a horror icon he's the funniest of the bunch kind of his mannerisms from the original he's just the, um, he's just like a really well balanced man of humour and of horror uh, this character in this film is a lot more heavy handed than I'm used to seeing him um, so it's kind of the best way to go off it is it's a bit like the new Halloween reboot um not Halloween Kills, which came out last year, but the Halloween 2008 reboot. You've got a famous final girl, um, and they've literally bypassed all the se all the sequels. It's going from Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So you've got a famous final girl that spent her entire life thinking about the person that's wronged her and like killed all of her friends in the past time, and she's just spent her entire being getting prepared to murder him, basically for revenge. But then you also chuck in a bunch of unlikable, like, I'm going to say Gen Z millennial characters that you're quite, you have no, like, relationship to. You're actually really happy when certain things happen to them because it's so entertaining and engaging. Um, I think it's a good recipe at the minute. It's working a little bit for me. Um, we, it's quite... Uh, unexpected release it's had like no backing really of marketing as such it's just kind of dropped onto netflix but it has like it's got elsie fisher in from eighth grade it's got really incredible gore scenes um i'm kind of a big fan of this just being released and it, it was quite fun it's very short it's one hour and 20 minutes and i had a blast out the whole thing Simon, I, th I heard a sigh from you there. I I'm not sure if that was a sigh of you're despondent. With I mean, you can take 
I mean, it's a Texas Chainsaw Massacre film. None of the sequels have been good. You have to go in with recognising what it is. Um, it's not going to be a patch on a classic. The the final showdown between the final uh, final girl from the previous film and um, Leatherface, I thought, was a real low moment of the film. However, I, I enjoyed it. Um, you know, some of the storyline, I thought the social commentary trying to put on I thought was misplaced and confused and you know there's so much you could do to criticise this film but I mean unlike the original one this one does actually have a chainsaw massacre in it and it is set in Texas which is more than could be same I mean the first one was set in Texas but the rest of it was you know as a horror film it was much more entertaining than most of the horror films I've seen in the cinema lately. I really did enjoy it. However, if you don't like gore and you're not a fan of horror films, it's not going to convert you. Yeah, I definitely. I watched this by myself last night, and uh, those I had to pause a few times because it got very intense. It's very, very gory, but yeah. <laughs> at this, at the centre of this film, the victims, let's say, are a group of young Gen Z influencers. Mm-hmm. Does it not feel like they're a bit of an easy target with this? Um, I mean, it's. I, I disagree with Simon a little bit. I, I'm quite a fan, big fan of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre franchise because it's just all over the place. And the original is kind of an accidental masterpiece because it's just Toby Hooper's sense of humor is so strange that it's just a terrifying horror movie to watch. Um, and this one's. This one's absolutely tasteless. Like people can say, like, uh, like, oh, it's trying to say this, it's trying to say this. I don't think it's trying to say anything. No. It's just yeah. having an absolute roller coaster of a ride. I'm um, just making fun of whatever, whoever, whatever characters show up at any given time. Um, I think. Uh, well, Vicky mentioned the Halloween thing. It's it's the film's very much marketed as Sally from the original film coming back and getting revenge on Leatherface, but that much like everything else in the film is just a complete subversion and the, it's, it's just I think it's co-written by Fetty Alvarez and his yeah. writing partner who did the Don't Breathe movies and the Evil Dead remake and they they seem to like poking the audience quite a bit which I really enjoy I just like the, the idea of these two guys who just like feel kind of invincible and they can just go around making fun of whatever they want and get away with it while doing like incredibly entertaining gore fest so, so I'm a big fan of this one and for people who, there will be people listening who are massive fans of the 1974 original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and they've gone through several films. This is the ninth one I think I, I saw when I googled it. Um, it doesn't do enough to please those people who are a fan of the original. I mean, the original is terrifying all the way through. Um, this film is not terrifying. Um, although, to be honest, there were some moments where I didn't know, for example, you, I couldn't predict the order that people were going to expire and when or how. So on there, it did actually build a bit of the tension, but it's so hard to be a patch on the original. And for anybody who, any of the fans of the original who complains about this film, I'm saying the other seven it's better than them, you know. <laughs> it's like, but if it's not terrifying, what is there to go on? It's, the gore, it's, the entertainment. It's yeah, it's such it's, an entertaining film. It's quite okay, a lot of um, actual physical effects, I think. Yeah. It's not CG blood, yeah. which you get in a lot of horror films or the past. There's no jump scares, I don't think, in any of here. It's no. all just straight up, straightforward. There's one moment at the end which I kind of cheered, and I can't quite repeat it now. But <laughs> but this, this phrase is going to go into my um, you know lexicon a bit elsewhere. Just not quite on radio, and I don't want to spoil it. But mm. yeah, it it was entertaining. Yeah. yeah. 
absolutely. I think there's also a lot of like um, clever creative visuals where it's, it's very obvious they're having fun. I think uh, the the two Don't Breathe guys, they definitely have a knack for fun visuals, but they didn't direct it. And there's definitely moments where, for instance, you see like a murder happening behind a swinging door and you can tell, oh, someone else doing this. It could be very funny and cool, but it's just not quite executed the best way. So it's it's not a masterpiece, but it's it's fun enough and it's quick enough to just kind of keep you engaged throughout the whole thing. And like Simon says, keep you guessing as to what order who gets expired in. And for fans who like a, a 90 minute film time, this one that is under 90 minutes, so it's quite it's a quick great. view, <laughs> which, is, which is quite rare yeah. these days. So, <laughs> so quite nice to see. So it looks like we've got some some good reviews here for Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I believe it is still showing at the View and Light Cinemas, and um, yeah, you can see it. And oh, Netflix, it's not Netflix. It's, it's on, on Netflix. Netflix. I am totally <laughs> wrong. It is on Netflix. As I said, I've not seen it. I don't like horror. I did so. Apologies, I did not do my full research there, but. That is it. We have run out of time. That's it for this week. Thank you so, so much to the team, to Lorcan, to Vicky and Simon. We are back on Saturday, the 5th of March, and we are going to be talking about Robert Patterson's turn in Batman and Peter Dinklage in Cyrano. So thank you very much. We're going to close the show with both sides now from Coda and see you next time. <laughs>